Taking your Bibles, turn with me to Matthew chapter 9. Our reading tonight begins at verse 18 through 26. Let us pray for the Lord's help. Our most gracious God, we ask tonight upon the occasion of your word being publicly read and preached in the assembly of your people, we ask for your help, for a kind visitation to the hearts and minds and wills of your people. We ask, Lord, for even more. We ask that even those who are perhaps dead in their sins and trespasses, like we once were, would hear the voice of the Master by your Holy Spirit. And recognizing your authority in your word would come to you savingly by faith. Father, we pray for this kind of help for all. Build us up, deliver to the praise, honor, and glory of your beloved Son, the Messiah, the Lord Jesus, the mediator of sinners. In Jesus' name, amen. Matthew chapter 9, verse 18. While he was saying these things to them, behold, a ruler came in and knelt before him, saying, My daughter has just died, but come and lay your hand on her, and she will live. And Jesus rose and followed him with his disciples. And behold, a woman who had suffered from a discharge of blood for 12 years came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment. For she said to herself, If I only touch his garment, I will be made well. Jesus turned and seeing her, he said, Take heart, daughter, your faith has made you well. And instantly the woman was made well. And when Jesus came to the ruler's house and saw the flute players and the crowd making a commotion, he said, Go away, for the girl is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But when the crowd had been put outside, he went in and took her by the hand, and the girl arose. And the report of this went through all that district. This is God's word. In our reading tonight, we are introduced to two daughters. The first is the 12-year-old daughter of Jairus, who is the ruler of the synagogue at Capernaum. She is his only daughter. And we learn these details and her age from chapter 8 of Luke's gospel and chapter 5 of Mark's gospel. The second daughter we meet is a woman who remains unnamed and appears to have no family connections whatsoever, which may explain why several church fathers thought she symbolized the Gentile church, seeking life from Messiah without rights of paternity to do so. That was Augustine's contribution. 
I don't think we need put much stock in those suggestions, though they are an encouragement. But we should notice how Jesus very tenderly calls this woman daughter. Verse 22. So here are two daughters. Of the several things they have in common, the most obvious is death. Jairus' daughter is dying. She is very sick. She is home lying on her deathbed when he leaves her. And by the time he arrives at the feet of our Lord Jesus, Jairus supposes she has died. He knew her condition when he departed. Nothing can be done for her now except what Jesus can do. The older woman, the daughter whom Jesus claims, she too is dying. She has been bleeding in the way women do and for 12 straight years. She has spent all her money on physicians seeking a cure but has found none. Luke tells us she is now bankrupt, which again suggests the absence of family from her life. Mark tells us another detail, that her condition actually got worse after all her visits with physicians. So like the little daughter, this woman, the big daughter, there's nothing that can be done for her except what Jesus can do. Now, as divine providence would have it, these two daughters of death also share the same 12 years of life. For Jairus and his wife, it has been 12 years of joy, 12 years of expectation. For the bleeding woman, it has been 12 years of misery, isolation, fading hope, and uncleanness according to the law. But now on this one day, this particular day, the 12 years of these two daughters is going to intersect. And that's all before us in one passage. Their lives are going to intersect in the gracious power of Jesus Christ. The youngest daughter has been given 12 years of good life. Will Jesus care to give her more? The oldest daughter has been given 12 years of sorrow. Will Jesus care to end her sorrow? So what is Matthew doing in dropping this narrative right here, this report of the two daughters of death in this place? Why does he include these events? He includes these because we are to learn the same thing from these two daughters. We are to learn we are dying. You are dying. You will soon be dead. We are to learn that at the very least. And we are to also learn we should go to Jesus because nothing can be done for you who are dying. Nothing can be done for you but what Jesus can do for you. Only Jesus has the compassion and the power to do something about your death. He does care, and if you come to him with simple faith, he will do for you what he does for these two daughters of death. 
He will keep death far from you forever and ever. They are resuscitated, but that resuscitation is by the power of he who is the resurrection and the life. That resuscitation is but a foretaste of an everlasting resurrection. They will die again, but they shall never die, for he is the resurrection and the life. How good it is to talk like our Lord does to Martha in John 11. But there is something in us that is opposed to the simple faith that we are called to in our text, and that is pride. Pride is that vain confidence within the human heart that says, my life is my own, I have life in myself, I have kept it, and I will keep it. I don't need to be one of those who cry out for help. I don't need pity. I don't need to be the object of someone else's compassion and power. Even though man knows death is certain, his pride tells him that if he must answer to God, he will somehow figure it out in the moment. The Lord Jesus has come, so we don't have to figure it out in the moment. The Lord has come and pulled back the veil and showed us the way to life everlasting. The Lord speaks against all such kind of pride. What the Lord says to the nation of Edom, he says to the proud, to the proud everywhere. The pride of your heart has deceived you. You say in your heart, who will bring me down to the ground? I will bring you down, says the Lord. Obadiah chapter 1. And he has brought us down. He has brought us down to death. Death is God's own judgment on his proud and sinful creatures. That's why these two daughters of death are dying. That's why you are dying. Death is God's own judgment on his proud and sinful creatures. The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord, Romans 6.23. So the Lord wants you to see both of these tonight. He wants you to see death in its sorrow and misery. He also wants you to see life, and the only way to life, faith in Jesus. And to help you believe for the first time or to help you increase your faith, God presents to us the grace, the compassion, and the power of Jesus Christ for those who are dying. Look at the compassion of our Lord Jesus. Look at his compassionate response to this ruler of the synagogue. This man is a prominent man in Capernaum, a man of dignity, a man of austerity, Relative to his neighbors, he is a wealthy man, the ruler of the synagogue. But Jairus has been brought low under the weight of death. Have you yet? Have you yet been brought low under the weight of death? The decree and curse of God upon this world is pressing down on Jairus and bearing its proper fruit in Jairus. He is greatly humbled. In the presence of a crowd, 
he falls at the feet of Jesus. And we know there is a crowd there because it says in verse 18, while he, our Lord, was saying these things to them, that's when the ruler approaches in the midst of a crowd. All of the people in that crowd would have looked up to Jairus. Yet Jairus falls to his knees in a position of worship at the feet of Jesus Christ, and he begins begging, which is more vivid in Luke and Mark. He is shamelessly soliciting the compassion of Jesus. Have you done that? Beloved, this solicitation, this shameless, prostrate solicitation, this broken, humble solicitation for the compassion of Yahweh, it is what moves the heart of God. Divine compassion responds to human brokenness. The Lord wants us to know this. It becomes explicit down in verse 36 at the end of our chapter. But listen for a moment to Exodus twenty-two twenty-six. If ever you take your neighbor's cloak in pledge, you shall return it to him before the sun goes down, for that is his only covering, and it is his cloak for his body. And what else shall he sleep? And if he cries to me, I will hear, for I am compassionate. The Lord concern is for the body without the cloak. How much greater is his concern for the child of God who is dying without life? What is the Lord doing in speaking that way in Exodus 22, laying down his law? Well, he is making himself the hero to the poor, isn't he? He is drawing all who need compassion to seek recourse in him. He is becoming the defender of those whose bodies are in danger. And he's foreshadowing to us that his son will take a body for all those whose bodies are in danger of sin and death and hell. So Jesus begins following Jairus. Not because Jairus brought a sacrifice of meat, not because Jairus brought a bag of money, not because Jairus brought 10 character references, not because Jairus said, hey, I have a great opportunity for you to show off your power, Jesus. None of those things bring Jesus to follow Jairus. Jesus was moved. His compassion was engaged. The splankna in the Greek, his bowels went out of him figuratively toward this little daughter, their only daughter. He follows because Jairus was broken, humbled, hungry for help of the Lord. Remember what King David said in Psalm 51? For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Do you know how much good news that is for us? Because we will not all have a bag of money. We will not all have great character references. We all 
do have, though, reason to be broken before God. And it is a gift to know that the more we are humbled before him by our diseases and our decay and our death, the more his compassion is turned to us and our needs. Now, when we meet this bleeding woman, she has a different kind of poverty of family than Jairus. Jairus has an only daughter. Perhaps his wife has not been able to have another child after her. We don't know the exact details, but we know that she is their only daughter. There's a poverty of family in in Jairus' house, but so much more in the older woman's house, the bleeding woman. Everything in our text suggests that she was either an only child or at least she is now the last one living in her family. Could this be why Jesus so tenderly calls her daughter? When was the last time she heard someone speak that word to her with such compassion, such authority? The point of all this is that we are learning that the eternal God, our Lord Jesus Christ, is moved by his compassion to do something about our greatest losses, our greatest loneliness. We can be confident that if we lose everything in this world, we will not lose the pity and power of Jesus Christ, who died but is now alive forevermore. He will not withdraw his hand from those who are prostrate before him, crying for help. And beloved, this not only applies to the needs of your body, it applies to the needs of your soul. When you come up against that deadness in your spirit to show compassion yourself, a deadness in your spirit to show zeal for the things of God in his church, a deadness in your spirit towards prayer, a deadness in your spirit towards all the manifold ways in which you are to live as a Christian in the world, cry out to him. He is compassionate. Fathers, have you come up against the deadness in your spirit against being a father, being a husband, in the way Christ has called you to be? Women, have you come up against the deadness in your spirit to be in a mother and a wife the way Christ has called you to be? Don't read another book. Prostrate yourself to the one who knows every movement of death in your life and ask him to heal. There will be powerlessness and death continually in us until we fall before Jesus and ask him to heal us and make us alive. We can be confident if we lose everything in this world, we will not lose the pity and power of Jesus Christ. And make no mistake, we will be losing everything in this world. Our death will separate us from this world. There is no Starbucks in the age to come. Whatever it is, it's better. But this will not separate us from life, though we are separated from the world. Because our life is not drawn from the world. Our life is drawn from the eternal God. 
Everyone who in humble faith believes on Jesus as the Savior of the dead will live forever. The lowliest believer is as precious to the heavenly father as an only child is to an earthly father. Why can I make such a bold claim? Because of John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. God has given up his one and only son to death on a cross This is how precious his grace has made us in his eyes. He doesn't even spare his own son to bring us out of death. Well, these events in our text are here. So we might come to Jesus and solicit his compassion for our death. Now, when Jairus and the bleeding woman come to seek him, things do not go quite as they each planned. They both end up receiving powerful, life-giving compassion from the Lord, but they receive it on the Lord's terms. What is Jairus expecting when he comes to Jesus? He is expecting that Jesus will come straight away to his house and save his daughter from a terminal illness. But instead, Jesus causes a delay in the journey because he stops and speaks to the woman who touches his robe. In Luke's gospel, this is filled out even more. And the delay from the woman who's bleeding results in the very next scene of friends of Jairus's coming to him in the crowd and saying, Jairus, your daughter has died. There's no more need to bother the master. Jairus was expecting no interruption. What was the bleeding woman expecting? The bleeding woman is expecting that she can secretly be healed by Jesus without Jesus even knowing about it. She expects to be healed and slip back home and manage her own healed life, working out for herself how and when she will re-enter society. She is surely anxious about laws given in Leviticus 15 regarding cleanliness Leviticus 15.25 reads, If a woman has a discharge of blood for many days, not at the time of her menstrual impurity, or if she has a discharge beyond the time of her impurity, all the days of the discharge she shall continue in uncleanness, as in the days of her impurity she shall be unclean. But our Lord Jesus preempts all of these plans. Why does he do it? What is his purpose in changing the expectations of both Jairus, the father, and the bleeding woman? Well, we don't want to say more than our text says, but our text gives us a very specific purpose that Jesus has for these two injured souls. And that purpose has to deal with their faith. The woman's faith is specifically mentioned in verse 22. Jesus turned and seeing her, he said, take heart, daughter, your faith has made you well. The Lord Jesus is exalting, in a way, this woman's faith. He could have just as easily exalted himself. He could have just as easily glorified himself. It was Jesus and his power that made her well, Why does Jesus 
make so much of her faith in the crowd? Well, one reason is because he has already been exalted by her faith. Chrysostom, the fourth century preacher, bishop, says there are five five things that explain our Lord's turning and calling her daughter and complimenting her faith. Five reasons he does it. And this is kind of interesting. You've got to go all the way back to the 4th century to find the first, the first list sickle. Do you know what that is? A lot of modern journalism says, here are 10 things about this, and here are 7 things about this. Here in the 4th century, Chrysostom beat them all. In a tight little paragraph, he says, here are the five reasons the Lord compliments her faith and calls her daughter. I'll read them to you right out of his homily. First, Jesus put an end to her fear. He gives her no cause for her conscience to be harmed as if she had stolen a gift. Second, he corrects her assumption that she has no right to be seen. He stops and brings her in and calls her daughter before men. Third, he makes her faith an exhibit to all to be emulated by all. Fourth, his subduing the fountains of her hemorrhage was another sign of his knowledge of all things. Finally, fifthly, Jesus indirectly admonishes the ruler of the synagogue by what he says to the woman, Take heart, daughter. Your faith has made you well. The Lord Jesus puts simple, saving faith in the ears of all who are there. Faith in him. You lay a hold of the whole Christ and all his kingdom and all his power and all his eternal life. You lay hold of it all. Not by the works of the law, but by simple faith in him. You see, faith is the most honorable service the soul can render to Jesus Christ. Faith is the most precious and esteemed service we give to him. Nothing pleases Jesus more than our faith in him. And so he exalts the woman's faith and reveals to us that faith is what he wants from us. And where he finds it, he is most delighted. He does not ask the woman for money like her physicians did. He does not ask the woman for a sacrifice. He does not ask her for character references. Her sincere need of him, her confidence that he is the power of God and the wisdom of God, is enough to receive from him life. Faith, in a way, comes roaring into view when our Lord Jesus arrives at Jairus' house. At the house, he and Jairus are met by flute players, and a crowd of professional mourners. Third century rabbis, who hopefully we trust are capturing some first and second century rules and habits of the Jews, third century rabbis said that even the poorest Jewish family were expected to hire not less than two pipers and one wailing woman for a funeral to help the family and friends and neighbors enter into a proper state of mourning. These professional mourners are also mentioned in the prophet Jeremiah chapter 9, verse 17. 
Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider and call for the mourning women to come and send for the skillful women to come. Let them make haste and raise a wailing over us that our eyes may run down with tears and our eyelids flow with water. There's a commotion of professional mourners at Jairus's house. Himself not being a poor man probably had quite a few professionals on hand. But our Lord Jesus says, go away. The Lord has not come to make a spectacle. He has come to bring life. And the people who he sends away, the text says, they laugh at him. This is the laughter of derision. This is the laughter of mocking. This is a portend of the laughter of crucifixion. He will be rejected for telling the truth about life being in himself. He will be rejected and crucified for it. And this laughter here is just a foretaste of the derision he will experience and hear at the foot of the cross while he is dying in the flesh and bone of the people who are mocking him, dying to bring them out from under death. Our Lord Jesus enters the room, and he takes this 12-year-old girl by the hand, and the girl arose. With what did he take her hand? With what did the eternal God of eternal life take the hand of a 12-year-old girl who was dead in her bed, in her bedroom? With what did he take her hand? He took her hand with the very thing which Jairus asked her to take her hand with. Back in verse 18, come and lay your hand on her. He took her hand with his hand. The eternal God of eternal life has taken to himself a hand. Like the children like the little children who have been in the fear of death, Hebrews 2 says. He has become like them. He has become what they are, so they may become what he is, said Athanasius. Beloved, this is why Jesus is in our flesh and bone, to give us life, because in, we in our flesh and bone have brought our race to death. But he, the eternal God in our flesh and bone, brings our flesh and bone to life. Back to Athanasius. If you, if you really must read the best discourse ever written on death, it was written by Athanasius, titled On the Incarnation, and has a lovely introduction by C.S. Lewis in the modern editions. Listen to these words from our long-departed brother, Athanasius of Alexandria. Death has become like a tyrant who has been completely conquered by the true and legitimate monarch. Bound hand and foot, this death is, so passers-by may sneer at him, hitting him and abusing him, no longer afraid of his cruelty and rage. 
because of the king who has conquered him. So has death been conquered and branded for what it is by the Savior on the cross. It is bound hand and foot. All who are in Christ trample it as they pass by and as witnesses to him deride it, scoffing and say, O death, where is thy victory? O grave, where is thy sting? Jesus Christ is the way and the truth and the life. Let us pray. Father, we thank you and praise you that you indeed have given your one and only Son, having not spared him, so that he would come to us in the very likeness of sinful flesh, taking to himself a true body and reasonable soul, so that he might bear in our flesh and bone that penalty that belongs to us for sins committed in flesh and bone. Lord, we thank you for your zeal to conquer man's greatest enemy, the enemy who has defeated us generation after generation, who has buried us year after year, trampled, bound, defeated, silenced for all who are in life through faith in Christ. Father, I pray for all who have heard your word, that all who have heard would come to the Lord Jesus, that they would reckon with their death before they are on their deathbed, for such is the purpose of your word coming to us tonight as it has. Lord, we pray that we would understand why men die. We would understand the power of sin. That we would understand the justice of a holy God. That we would understand, O oh Lord, that we must be born again, born from above. O oh Lord, grant us ears to hear and hearts to believe that only in Jesus does death become asleep to us, something from which we shall awake to a blessed day. But outside of him, death is a horror. It is a terror. It is a taskmaster without pity. And it will be an eternal death of weeping and gnashing and teeth. O oh Lord, grant us to come to him who is full of compassion and prostrate ourselves before the Lord Jesus and cry out for his mercies, cry out to his compassionate heart, knowing we will not be turned away. Give us the life. Raise us from that death that Scripture describes spiritual death, dead in our sins and trespasses. And deliver us then from the fear of death, so that we might live unto God and deliver us from bodily death on the day of the resurrection. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.